Welcome to the New Manager Podcast. I'm your host, Kim Nickel. Hello and welcome. I'm glad you're here and I hope you're doing well. Today's episode is a little different and it's very special because today I'm sharing a conversation that I had with my dad. He has had a very interesting career and I wanted to talk with him about what he's learned about leadership and work and career and like some of the things that we talk about here on this show. I wanted to talk with him and get his perspective. So I really enjoyed the conversation. I know you're going to enjoy it too. Get ready to take some notes. There are a couple of really great nuggets that he'll drop as we talk. So without further ado, here we go. Welcome. Welcome. Thank you. (laughs) So could you just introduce yourself? You want me to introduce myself? Yeah. What's your name? Let's start with that. Uh, I know that. My name is Kirby Nickel. (laughs) I was born and raised in the Midwest and uh, traveled overseas, uh, working in international coaching for many, many years. Uh, Got married, came to live in California and... uh, have developed a career in uh, real estate and politics and uh, road racing. And uh, now I'm doing a podcast. <laughs> Thanks. And you're also my dad. <laughs> I'm also your father. <laughs> I'm really delighted to have this conversation with you on the show, in part because so there's a lot of different things that you've done in your life. And for me growing up, one of the things I really knew you as was as this leader in the community, specifically around running. And every year there was this really big event, the Wharf to Wharf race. And I know that in the beginning, it started off as this really small local fun run. And over the years, it turned into a really big event, like a, like a very international event. And now that I'm you know, grown up and I'm doing a lot more around coaching and leadership, it started me getting really curious about what your experience was like as a leader of an, you know, in a nonprofit organization and having worked with a small team, seeing it grow to a big team. So I'm wondering if, can you describe what was the race like when you first got involved? Like, how big was it? What was it like? Well, the first uh, race, which was called the Wharf to Wharf Race, is a six-mile event uh, running from Santa Cruz, California to Capitola, California. It began in uh, 1973, which was the year that I arrived in, in the Santa Cruz area. And uh, because I had a background in running, I volunteered the first year and I worked with the organization over a period of several years, and uh, I think the uh, the number of runners back in 1973 was something like 172, and and over the years it, it grew to um, uh, 16,000 runners, and the race and field would sell out within about two hours, and um, that growth happened um, because uh, there was a a running boom going on at the time. And more and more people were concerned about health and fitness, and that's that's what people did. 
And uh, originally it was just uh, a running event, uh, but I recognized early on that uh, there was a potential to create from it a fundraising element that we could use to uh, further promote running in the community and the health and fitness of the people of our county. So I took a larger and larger role in the event and eventually uh, became the race director. And I held that position for a long, long time, about 40 years. And what I did was I looked at other races around the country, which were successful to see what kinds of things they were doing that were working and what kinds of uh, elements they had in their package that were adaptable to uh, peculiar elements of the wharf-to-wharf -wharf race. And this being a coastal community and on the West Coast and having, uh, you know, a, a different weather pattern than some other places and so forth. So I felt like I didn't really need to reinvent the wheel, but what I needed to do was add features to the event, such as uh, live music, such as uh, an annual race poster, which would you know bring the artists in the community uh, into the event and uh, develop fundraising uh, capabilities through the promotion of sponsorships, bringing in commercial sponsorships. And as the race got, got bigger and bigger and bigger, um, our manpower needs got bigger and bigger and bigger and eventually wound up with uh, about 20,000 people involved in the event every year. Most of those were volunteers, right? We had about 2,000 volunteers every year, and uh, they ranged from, uh, you know, pilots to bus drivers to street uh, monitors to, uh, and then we had the runners themselves, the 16,000 runners. And the trick to putting uh, that kind of organization together is a fundamental understanding of, of human nature, I think, that all people need to feel valued and all people need to feel that they're uh, useful and re respect and get the respect of those that they respect. And if you look at, you know, the great organizations, a classic one would be the, uh, the militaries of the world. They're very, very good at uh, recognizing through medals and ribbons and awards and, uh, and so forth, uh, all the people in the organization at, at every level. But no matter whether you're talking about, you know, the pilot of the airplane or the person who serves the coffee in the back, all of those people need to feel like that they're important and that they need to do their job the best that they possibly can. And when they do that, you know, they have pride in what they're doing and they'll do it well. What are your thoughts about how to do that in an organization that's continuing to grow, right? Like you have this clear perspective <clears throat> on the importance of helping people feel respected and appreciated no matter what they're doing. But if there were 2,000 volunteers, you probably didn't have a personal relationship with each of those people, right? Right. But it also seemed, I mean, for me, for the outside, it seemed like the culture of people participating in helping make the race happen there seemed to be a common through line of people feeling proud to be a part of it, of wanting to be a part of it. So from your position as the executive director and as the leader, how do you make that happen across thousands of people? Well, a lot of our volunteers were people in the education community and the sports community. And uh, all of the people in the sports community uh, belong to teams of some kind. And the teams have captains and the and the teams have coaches and the teams have organization protocols. 
So uh, what I would do is uh, go to the local football coach and say, look, we need uh, 40 people to do, a, to do a certain job. And uh, he had control of those 40 people. And they would do whatever he said to do because they were part of his team. So my job was to make him feel important so that he would pass that on to his team. And then that feeling of value and respect and importance flowed throughout the organization. I'm also remembering <laughs> as I'm thinking about, like, I think one of the things I've seen you be good at is inspiring people and helping them feel like they want to be a part of something. And also, <laughs> I remember plenty of summers as a kid when we would, you know, me and my brother would go and we would stuff envelopes <laughs> like all day. <laughs> or like we also got recruited into doing the physical labor of making things happen, whether it was, oh, I remember going to the post office with you, getting all of the registrations, because this was all back before people could register online. Everything happened by mail, right. right? You have to fill out your application, right. mail the check. And I remember going with you to the post office and picking up the mail and then bringing it back to the office and going through every envelope and opening the envelope and putting the check here and that written application form here. And I remember even looking at the stamps on the envelopes and feeling like, wow, people are coming from all over and mm -hmm. that sense of connection. And it really changes then the way that the work feels. Right. So where are you going with that? <laughs> Just observing how, you know, now I can look back and be like, oh, right. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, that sense of how do you, it's one thing to assign a task to somebody, right? Yes. Like when you're talking about the football team, like it's one thing to say, okay, like you're on this football team, you're now assigned with this task, but it's another skill to make people feel like it's worthwhile and to feel good about doing it and even feeling like I would do this again next year. Because my recollection too is there were a lot of volunteers who came back year after year and it started to feel like there's a connection, there's a bond in doing the work and creating the experience. Right. So in in my circumstances where I was, you know, getting a football team to come in and work on the uh, on the on the the race we, we didn't pay the volunteers we gave them t-shirts but we gave money to the uh, the program so they knew that by helping out with this race uh they were going to get new football helmets for example or new shoes or new or balls or whatever and it was good for their program so you know they were doing a valuable service but at the same time, they were benefiting and they were being uh, being recognized. I think that's the key to it is the recognition. I'm also curious about you had this really interesting career in sports and athletics. And I'm interested in what you learned about leadership and managing people and helping a group of different people just move in the same direction. Can you talk about that? Uh, give me a little more <laughs> guidance on that. <clears throat> yeah. So one thing is, so a lot of the, you know, a lot of my listeners, they work in organizations, a company, a nonprofit. Sometimes they're managing direct reports, like there's a direct reporting structure, but sometimes it's more informal the way that they're managing and leading people. And I have such distinct memories of you talking about what 
sports does in terms of creating a sense of connection and team. And I'm thinking there must be some lessons from the world of sports and helping people go beyond what they think they're capable of or helping people work together in a way that also becomes like an applicable lesson for the workplace. What do you think? Well, I think people like to feel like they're an important part of something that's bigger than themselves. And uh, again, nobody wants to just be a, a cog in the machine. Everybody wants to be a very the most important cog in the machine. And they want to make sure that uh, what they do contributes to the success of the entire enterprise. So there again, I think you, uh, you know, you need to look at the model of um, a military organization, perhaps, which is pretty rigid, but uh, it's very clear that when you when you begin in the military, you start very low. And if you do well, you get elevated and you get insignia and you get a title and so forth. And you work your way up uh, in the military system, you know, up, the, up the ladder. And the same thing can happen in, uh, in any organization. You need to let the uh, people at the um, entry level understand that the entry level is just that. It's the entry level. And if they do well, they're going to work their way up and there's, there's a future there. And, and that's exciting to them. And it gives them an incentive to, to do their job well. And, you know, the other thing I'm thinking about is I don't, I, it, it took me a lot, I think, a long time to realize that not every kid learned about the Olympic creed when mm. they were growing up. And I feel like that's something that I remember you talking about and this idea too that, especially at the Olympics and also for context. So you were an Olympic coach. I was. Yeah. Which, you know, it's like not everybody gets to do that. That's, that's <laughs> a pretty, a pretty incredible experience to have had. Well, I uh, learned about uh, the Olympics and the Olympic code as a young track and field coach back in Wisconsin. And I went to a clinic and uh, it was uh, called Olympia West. And it was up in uh, northern Minnesota or Wisconsin, I think. But the whole idea of it was to ingrain in the, in the coaches who were there the idea that it wasn't necessary to win. The most important thing was to fight well, because depending upon your level of experience and your ability and so forth, you, you might fight very, very well, but you might not win. And you need to be happy knowing that you, you gave it your best shot. And um, conversely, if you are very, very talented and uh, you don't work very hard and you don't give it your best shot, uh, you may or may not win. And that doesn't feel good either. Mm -hmm. So uh, again, the most important thing is not winning the race, but, you know, the, is the struggle. Yeah. Well, and what I also hear in that too, it's about how you show up in the face of challenge and adversity. How you show up. Yeah. Like this idea of there will be challenges. Some of them, you know, you can expect. Sometimes the challenge is simply, do I want to get out of bed? early and, you know, put on my running shoes and go for a run when it's dark and cold outside. Sometimes the challenge is as sort of ordinary as that, but sometimes there are other kinds of challenges that we face. And so the question of it's not necessarily 
whether you win, that is the most important thing. It's how do you choose to meet that moment, right? Can you look back and say, I did my best and the outcome was this, but I was still showing up in a way that I can right. feel proud of. Well, uh, I think what you need to be able to do is look in the mirror every morning and see somebody better there than you saw yesterday in some small way, some little tiny, small, measurable way, whether you did an extra push up or whether you cut an extra second off your uh, your running time or if you uh, made some small improvement in the workplace or your job or you help somebody. But somehow or other, when you look in the mirror every morning, you need to see that that you're improving, that you're getting better at whatever it is that you are and whatever it is that you do so that you have that sense of, uh, of self value and growth. And in any organization, there's a there's a learning curve. And once you get through the learning curve, then you arrive at a plateau and then you start. Guess what? A new learning curve. And you keep doing that as you rise. And that's the key to rising. Yeah. Well, and what are what would be your thoughts about if you're leading a team and they're in a place where they're really struggling, or maybe they're not seeing the progress that they want, or they're at the part of the learning curve where they thought, oh, I thought it would get easier by now. I thought I had this all figured out. How do you how do you motivate a team or help them to give their best even when they're not maybe feeling their best? I think one uh, way to do that is to have them go back to their first day at work and remember who they were and what they thought and what they were doing uh, and how they felt at that time. And by doing that, they can uh, look and they can see that they've actually come a long way since then. And uh, really, that happens every day. And that's, again, part of looking in the mirror in the morning and seeing somebody there that you're uh, happier for and uh, are prouder of than you saw yesterday. And it's through that improvement that you grow as a human. And through that human growth, whatever organization you're with is going to benefit. And that that feeds on itself. I think that's such a great point. There's, I, there's a snowball effect there. Yeah. Well, and I know sometimes it can be so hard when if you're looking in the mirror and only comparing yourself to where you want to be, but are not there yet, rather than looking behind <clears throat> and acknowledging where you started and how far you've come. Because if you're only looking at what you haven't done or, or how things are not working and you're not remembering how much you've accomplished along the way, mm -hmm. it makes things even harder. Let me give you a golf analogy. Oh, great. I don't golf. Because I, like I like to play golf and I've been, I've been practicing uh, golf I, I for, know. A, for half a century, <laughs> thinking I'll get better. Okay. Oh, okay. Um, but it always occurs to me that, uh, you know, golf is not about getting the ball in the hole every time. <laughs> That's good to know. Okay. Um, in fact, if every time you hit the golf ball, uh, the ball went in the hole, nobody would play. The only reason people play golf is because of the high probability of failure and the remote possibility of success. But when that success happens, 
it feels so good. <laughs> it feels so good. And life is like that. You know, uh, it's, you don't have perfect days every day. You know, you have some good things happen and some other things happen. And work is that way. You have some successes and you have some uh, days when things don't go right. But, you know, the key is to, uh, you know, stay out there and keep at it and keep trying. And, and knowing that every once in a while, when you hit that ball, it's going to go in a hole and it's going to feel so good. <laughs> and you're saying this as someone who has hit a hole in one more than once. I've had four hole in ones in my lifetime. A hole in one is not something you do, it's something that happens to you. you know? <laughs> right. But I guess it can't happen unless you show up. It doesn't anyways. happen unless you show up exactly. Exactly. And so, that's why I go play golf every Wednesday and come home in tears. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with tears. <laughs> Part of a human experience. <laughs> well, and also, you golf with friends, right? So you're with others along the way. You're in it right. together. <laughs> right. It's fun. Misery loves company. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I want to I want to go way back. I remember when I was a kid. I remember you telling me a story about one of the earliest jobs you had, and it involved a red fire truck and a white ladder. My goodness, you still remember that? I do. So uh, when I was in high school, trying to figure out what to do with the rest of my life, I took a job in Freeport, Illinois, at the Structo Toy Company. And I got put on the uh, fire engine assembly line. And my job was to sit in this chair next to this giant cardboard box full of little white ladders. And as the red chassis of the fire engine fire truck came down the assembly line, my job was to reach over into the box, get the white ladder out, grab the little red fire truck, clip the ladder on the top, and then send it on down the line. And somebody else would put the wheels on and so forth and so on. But my job was I was the ladder man. Now, this is the very bottom of the uh, production chain, right? And I was brand new and this was my job. And I did this job for a week. I put thousands of ladders on little red fire trucks. And at the end of the week, I said to myself, self, maybe I'll go to college. And I did. And of course, my life changed after that. So I'm not sure what that story means in this context, but uh, that was my experience. I guess it has to do with, uh, you know, trying something. And if it's if it's not working for you and you're not growing, you're just doing the same thing over and over and over and over again. And you're not seeing any progress. And, you know, pretty soon you get, it gets stale and flat and boring and then you quit. Yeah. Well, and I think, too, it's, it's so helpful to remember that especially early in your career, the goal is not necessarily to pick the perfect job. Like you take a job and you will learn something about yourself along the way. And then you can make different decisions about what you want to do with your life and your career. And you might learn something about yourself that you didn't know, whether it's about the kind of work that you want to do or that you don't want to do, or thinking about what is the path I want to take and what does that look like? Well, I think yeah, I think it's I think it's good to try new things. Mm -hmm. uh, I've had uh, lots and lots of jobs down through time. I've never ever been fired, but I've quit lots of jobs and changed and uh, you know done everything from driving a truck and moving furniture to 
um, you know, coaching the, the national track and field team of uh, various countries. And, um, you know, being in the real estate business and construction and brokerage and uh, had a very broad, colorful career uh, all over the world. And uh, everything that I did uh, contributed to, to who I am now and my perspective on life. And uh, I think it all uh, it all fits together. It's all part of the, the final package. So I don't think you should be afraid of doing new things. I think you should try new things, knowing that no matter what you do, you're going to learn from it, good or bad. And that's going to affect who you are going forward. A lot of people that I talk with, one of the things they tell me is there's often a fear of making a mistake, especially as they go up and rise up in their career. And there's a feeling that there's more pressure. More people are looking to them for answers or more people are depending on them or there's more visibility. More people are just watching them. And so they start to feel more pressure and more fear about doing something wrong, especially if it's something that they haven't really done before. What are your thoughts or advice for that person? Well, I think it's important to understand that you're human and that humans make mistakes and you're going to make mistakes. And the key is to learn from those mistakes and, um, you know, not make them again going forward. But, you know, just think what your what your day would be like if you went through an entire day and everything went right. Nothing went wrong. Where would you be at the end of the day? And how would you look at tomorrow? So you have to uh, look at those misadventures and say, well, this was really a bad experience. This didn't happen very well, but I am better for it and uh, I'm going to be better going forward. You always have to be looking forward. That's the most important thing. I'm so appreciative. It's I, I feel like we don't often have this kind of conversation. <laughs> we talk about different things, but it's been so cool getting to talk with you and hear some of your thoughts and experiences around what it means to be a leader and manage a team. Well, I'm uh, I'm happy that you're happy. <laughs> Thanks, Dad. <laughs> When you're more effective at work, you're happier in your life. And when you're happier in your life, you're more effective at work. I can help. Go to my website, kimnickel.com and sign up for a coaching consult. It can get better.